0: Hey everybody, just a note, this episode contains adult themes and language. So two years ago, I I wrote this 2,000 word long essay for Esquire magazine about my mom, specifically about how I believe that her city and her country killed her. She died in 2013, after being diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer the year before, And I suspect that the cancer would have been discovered sooner if the pain she had been experiencing in the years prior had been taken more seriously. Am I certain of this? No. But there's enough historical and and present-day context of doctors and nurses mistreating and dismissing Black women for the suspicion to feel real. I wrote the first draft of it in two hours. And then my editor and I tinkered with it for two months afterwards until it was ready. I was proud of the finished product. The writing felt right. Was even able to use old pictures of my mom for art for the piece. And the response to it was great. I mean, people shared it and and said how beautiful and powerful it was. Some even volunteered similar experiences with their parents and sometimes even themselves. But something, I don't know, something felt off, felt unsettling. It just made me feel kind of yucky and, and 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 queasy. I'd already read my mom multiple times on every social media platform that I'm on. I'd already written about her pain and, and her treatment and the pain that's caused by family and other essays including in my book, where I devoted an entire chapter to it. So if if I'd already articulated this grief in public, and I'd already attempted to contextualize it, and if doing it made me feel like shit, why did I do it again? Who was I doing it for?
2: Red Baron's new fully loaded
0: hand toss style pizza is so full of toppings. Hold on there, partner. That there pizza is big enough for the both of us. With a half pound of toppings and a soft, chewy crust. It sure is. Problem is, though, this town ain't. (gasps) Introducing the Red Baron fully loaded hand toss style pizza. Share something awesome. So this is Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we're all grieving someone or something. And on today's episode, we we get inside of grief and mostly try to understand what it does when it's inside of us And, and also how
2: social expectations of grief affect us. I am only okay at baking and cooking, but I do love making food, or making anything really, crafting something that someone I loved who is no longer present taught me. It's kind of like bringing a small part of them back to life, you know? Those are my first rituals. I always go to what did I learn from this person and how can I execute it in my everyday life now?
0: So that's Hanif Adorakeep, Author, poet, music critic and MacArthur genius. And I I wanted to talk to him about grieving in public and and also how he grieves celebrities. I've been thinking a lot about the performance of grief, particularly like the public performance of grief. And I'm gonna take you back a bit. First time we actually met was at the Ford Foundation. They had a convening for critics of color yeah. Uh, over a couple of days, I think it was in either 2016 or 2017, we met in New York City for a couple of days. And I, I remember the biggest panel there or, or the panel that got most the most people talking and most people interested was the one about the Village Voice. And the Village Voice was a publication I obviously was very familiar with, but I did not have the same relationship with the voice that other people in the room did. And this is a way of me talking about Greg Tate, right? Who who passed last year, mm-hmm. and you know he was this this behemoth for 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 black writing, for black criticism, for for hip hop writing, for journalism, for you know all all these you know just different functions of of what we do. And I remember um, you know when he passed, there were so many so many beautiful remembrances and eulogies and and stories about him that were just all up and down my timelines um, because I follow other writers and media people, whatever. And I did not have that same relationship with him and his work. Um, And it wasn't because I didn't like it, but I just wasn't as familiar. Um, But I felt a pressure to respond because so so, so many of my peers, so many people that we knew were responding and responding with this, this really, just deep love and admiration, and, and 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 honoration, and I just, I don't know. Have you ever felt social pressure to grieve publicly in a way that you know may have felt somewhat inauthentic to you?
2: Yeah, I used to, but I've been, I've been thankful enough to be able to let it go. Mm-hmm. And I say that because what I actually think happens is. People feel isolated and people feel on the outside of an emotion. I think that's the actual mechanics of it. And that's why so much of the performance of grief, say, on a place like Twitter, uh, after a person passes, can be so nightmarish because Mm -hmm. it is isolating to watch people mourning someone who you don't feel a connection to. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of ways that manifests itself, that lack of connection or that distance sometimes it's with rage, right? And sometimes it's like doing the thing that some people do where they kind of rain on the parade of those morning. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of this is faith-based for me. I just really do believe in, no matter who it is, I just really believe if a person passes, then it is almost out of my hand. You know, like Madeline Albright passing, I'm not going to, to unfurl the scroll of war crimes then because <laughs> I've done it already done it while she was living yeah um and I don't think and this isn't me it me like even wishing her well or anything it's just me saying like after in a moment uh after a person dies I like to decenter myself unless I actually have something worthwhile to say I mean you know Tate um you know I'm someone who wrote something as he, after he passed and I, I, you know, um, it is, I, yeah, I mean, it goes without saying, I think at this point in my life career and anyone who knows i writing at all that, um, Tate's work meant a lot to me and he meant a lot to me. I'm currently like, and I, you still mourn, I you know, still, I'm working on my new book right now and I wish I could send some of the pages to him and I can't, you know? Um, and so there's a way that, I think we mourn publicly or that I mourn publicly that um, sets an intention for how I live in honor of that absence going forward. And if I can't do that, if I can't do that publicly, then I don't really say anything these days, but I used to. I mean, I, particularly with musicians, because there was a point in my life where I think people really turned to me when any musician died and looked for something. And there's some musicians who I just have nothing for. Not because I, you know, I don't want to get in the way of folks who have real palpable layered relationships with anyone, anyone's music, anyone's whatever, by throwing in some kind of half-assed thing just to check a box. Um, I think that's kind of what turned the tide for me. And I would say that happened around twenty seventeen. What happened in twenty seventeen that um I guess that caused
0: a shift? Was there a catalyst um for that?
2: So in 2017, this thing had happened where, and I don't remember, I will say I don't remember who asked me this or, or you know, why they asked this of me, but Chuck Berry died mm-hmm. in 2017. And I remember I was asked to write something and I just didn't, I, I think I did. And I remember even now, if I look back on it, I'm like, this isn't my best work and it's not my best work because I just, mm-hmm. I have some complications with Chuck Berry. One. Uh, as a person you know as personal Mm -hmm. complications with chuck berry and two my relationship with his music is actually not that strong now my relationship with his legacy sure i guess um but i remember feeling like i wrote this because people look to me Mm -hmm. to write things when musicians die and then in june of 2017 uh junie morrison passed away Mm -hmm. ohio funk legend right ohio players um funkadelic all of that like legend legend but He's less known outside of the borders of the state of Ohio, Mm. or at least he's less appreciated because, you know, Ohio funk pioneers, it'd be like that with their legacies. And I couldn't find anyone to like let me write about Junie Morrison, who I loved, you know, whose music I loved, who meant so much to this state and the music that was formed in this state. And I remember thinking, like, I can't believe I exerted this energy. And I say this not to disparage Chuck Berry, I suppose, or at least I'm in, I'm indifferent about the disparagement of punk of Chuck Berry, but um, I expended all this energy writing about a musician that I had a average at best relationship with, and this one that I just had this fluorescent relationship with, I could not find anyone who was interested in that because he was not as big, and it it trended me down this road of needing to give people um, their flowers. So to speak, both while they're present, but also preparing for a world where I can do it on my own terms. The thing I wrote for Greg Tate, I wrote just on my blog on 6805 because I didn't, one, I didn't want to get paid. I didn't want to get paid for writing about Greg Tate. Um, And I didn't want to be edited. You know, it's different when it's personal in that way. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to profit off of mourning someone who meant to me what Greg Tate meant to me. And I didn't. I didn't want to have an editor picking through sentences on a line level in that process of mourning. So that's, you know, 2017 shifted because of that. But I've also began thinking about how to get better at the slow and real honoring of elders, of everyone, but particularly of of elders um, in music.
0: Has there ever been a celebrity or musician's death whose, whose, I guess, impact on you surprised you?
2: Little Richard was hard for me. And it's weird because Little Richard had been unwell mm. for a long time. I mean, you know, some would say Prince, but an interesting thing about Prince is that I, we kind of, um, I had prepared myself for that. What I think people don't remember is that the Friday before Prince passed, passed on a Monday, the Friday before, there was that report that came up about his plane making an emergency landing. Um, and the details were vague. I remember this because I worked for MTV News and I was at a party on that Friday night and the news had come down about Prince, this Prince's plane making emergency landing, and I, was, yeah, I got a text from my editor, Jessica Hopper, or perhaps it was in the like group slack and it was just like, Okay, we gotta maybe prepare something because it seems like Prince might not be well. And then and then the report kind of went away. But the back of my mind was like, Oh, I'm a little worried that maybe something's up with Prince. So there was a way that I had prepared myself for the reality that Prince was um, not going to be with us and it was. It didn't feel sudden. The strange thing about Little Richard that still kind of haunts and I mean, Whitney too. Whitney maybe is um, Whitney, I, I want to say Whitney before I dive more into Little Richard because Whitney was devastating in part because I just knew I was among the Black folks who mm-hmm. had been rooting for her so vigorously and I knew so many Black folks who had been rooting for her so vigorously and it seemed like she was Perhaps, um, I don't want to say on the other side of where she was, but it seemed like she was, she was rejuvenated at that point in her life and career. She seemed rejuvenated and to kind of have that taken away in that manner. And I have it, her death was just made to be so salacious in a way that didn't do her life justice, which happens, I think with, with black women in, in particular, um, you know, People latch on to what can be made tragic about them. But Little Richard too, because, um, gosh, Little Richard spent so much of his life trying to tell people how great he was and people still didn't get it. And he died with people still not really getting it. Um, And that was really hard for me because I think so much about lineage and legacy. Not my own necessarily, but the legacy of, of people who I believe have put far more into the world than I have. Uh, and ever will. And it just, I was so heartbroken because of what I know, not what I believe, what I know, what I know about little Richard and how much more he deserved um, and how he never lived a life that offered him the fullness of what he deserved. And that was hard.
3: Yeah, I
0: I think that the two, that surprised me with how with how they hit me and still affect me today when I listen to their music. One is Amy Winehouse, and a- when oh, Amy when, when when I heard her, she passed, it just it I was a fan, but I wasn't like an Amy Winehouse stan. But I I, lo- I liked her music a lot. But when she passed, it just felt like you know what she it's like Babe Roof calling his shot. Like she had been t- writing about it, she had been singing about it, she had been talking about it, and then it happened. And it just it just it was just like, oh, she she knew. She yeah. knew. She knew she she knew yeah. this. She knew she was she knew she wasn't going to be here very long. And she wrote about it. She sung about it. She lived through it. And just that thinking about that the weight of having that knowledge. Right. It's just it still haunts me. It still haunts me when I think about that. And and also when um, Prodigy from All Deep passed. Yeah. And and when oh, he man, yeah. when he died, like and I, I'm not gonna say it surprised me because Mob Deep is like if Woo is one A, Mob Deep is one B for me in terms of my, you know, my, my favorite all time groups and the 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 people who I grew up on, the cold weather, <laughs> the cold weather music. Mm. And you know, after he passed, I went back and I listened to a lot of, you know, I listened to Hell on Earth, I listened to the infamous, um, Mostly those two, Um, and I just listened over and over and over again. Even murder music a little bit too, but mostly infamous and Hell on Earth. And what really struck me listening to it now, instead of as instead of a sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old in high school, was how depressed they were, and how that depression just existed throughout their music. Like even you know, you think about the first album. They're what, 16, 17 years old, making this album talking about, you know, all the drugs and all the alcohol they consume to take the pain away. At 16 or 17, however old they were when they produced, you know, the Infamous and they created the Infamous. And so just him dealing with sickle cell and having this this lifetime of pain, but bringing me joy with the music he made about his pain. Right and and just thinking about that and you know him finally succumbing to it and it just yeah that that I, I I'm just thinking about it still now fucks with me.
2: Yeah, I mean you know first off, Mob Deep is also one of my favorite groups of all time, and I think Hell on Earth is one of the great. Um, it is the saddest, of psychological it is the saddest album. Psychological journey. Saddest album. Yeah. Oh my God. Some dark album. Dark. And I think one thing. One thing I'm coming to terms with is the amount of rappers that we're losing, mm. which I think hit me. There's not one, but like collectively, it hit me. It's been hitting me through the past, I would say, two and a half years. The amount of rappers that are just not living um, to to not living to relative old age, you know, mm-hmm. um, that is a tough thing. Because I would love it if if the rappers I loved had robust and long lives after their careers wound down or if the rappers i loved could continue to have wonderful and effective legacy tours the way that like the rolling stones do Mm -hmm. and all this but you know lucid's marquee was hard and you know gift of gab i mean a lot of folks that we've lost and continue to lose like really Mm -hmm. it worries me and it makes me a little sad He
3: said they used to steal cars like they were taking the bus. On the weekends, my dad and Corey would jump one and drive it a minute up the way from the roller rink and walk the rest. If they needed a ride home, they'd just jump another and head back. One night, Mario gets a Trans Am and picks my dad and Corey up to go party in Homewood. They go to get ready first, find a little buzz before leaving, but then two bright black angels show up who my father and Corey would rather get drunk with, so they decide to stay behind. Mario leaves without them and goes to pick up a few others, and they're speeding down East Carson. I mean fast, my father tells me, hugging himself. Too damn fast. And before Mario's body can hear his mind screaming, he collides with another car, an elderly couple. And as soon as their noses touch, the cars become one and explode everyone died in the fire except roger who caught an air underneath him and went soaring from the car and into a coma for years we were just with him my father says i should be dead he says it wasn't until tuesday when my father watched the challenger space shuttle explode 70 seconds after takeoff that he finally let the tears fall In that moment, when the whole world inhaled sharply and fell silent, my father bowed his head and screamed. There, sitting alone on the edge of his bed, while the world grieved seven mighty space heroes, my father wept for his own, for Mario and for the night chariot that in the end belonged to him. You might think the sadness of the world eclipsed my father's cries, but in mystery, it amplified them. I don't know what that did to me, he says. It was like someone poured heat all over me and I was burning too. My father didn't know how to grieve for his friend until the whole world stopped and grieved. It is not always instinctual. We are born knowing how to cry, but sometimes it takes another to teach us how to cry well and with purpose. As we watch our elders cry, we are learning. Sister June taught me how to grieve with my body. My father taught me how to feel the tears on my face and not wipe them away. I'm Cole Arthur Riley. This is from a chapter on lament from my book, This Here Flesh.
1: I sort of halfway live in another world anyway. Like I'm always sort of connected to the, whatever, the other side or, um, so I have to really manage it because I can get, I can get really overwhelmed.
0: So that's the brilliant and generous, uh, Imani Perry, author of the New York Times bestseller, South to America, a journey below to Mason Dixon to understand the soul of a nation. And I I wanted to talk to her about how grief impacts our life and our work.
1: I mean, I think for me, you know, it was interesting right before COVID hopped on the scene, I came, I was coming out of a period of years of very serious grief where Mm -hmm. I sort of, I lived in a, a grief, a grieving state for like a decade, um, I mean, not an, and I wasn't depressed, I was grieving. I mean, mm-hmm. there were moments where I was depressed, but I want to draw that distinction because...
0: Can you make that distinction between grief and depression?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, depression doesn't have to be causal, right? It mm-hmm. can be chemical and it's, you know, um, and it has multiple forms. But I feel like, you know, with grief, you really, I think... Once it's out of the most acute stage, you can really function the way you do normally, but it's just your sort of part of you isn't there mm-hmm. because you are um, missing the self, the person or people you're grieving, but also miss- missing the self that was right. Mm-hmm. So for me, what part of my grief was they're all the, I I stopped looking forward to things because I saw moving forward in time associated with more death for me. And I also, there's this gap where p- things that were important in my life could no longer exist because the people who I shared shared them with were gone, right? Like this sort of certain set, set of feelings. So I was coming out of grief mm-hmm. <laughs> when COVID started. And then in many ways, it kicked me back into it, although different kind of grief, because it was sort of the grief of sort of the life of I I lived in community, you know, in community mm-hmm. with other people. Um, but I think it impacted my work in this way One, it, it, in some ways it deepened my particular voice, which is grief soaked, um, as a writer. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, also, and I know, you know, I know this is part of the voice, part of your literary voice as well, where you're both, you're, you're joyful. There's, there's joy, there's play, but, but there's also, um, that dimension of it, which is, um, acknowledging sort of the presence of loss. So in some ways it's sort of, I feel like it, my voice in that respect coalesced in a way, right? That mm-hmm. where now it's part of my writing was permanent permanently. <laughs> um, uh, and then I also wanted to record much more, everything, right? Okay. You don't know if you're going to live. You want it like, you're so conscientious about, and part of that is having autoimmune disease anyway, but you want to leave things to the world um, and the people you love very deliberately. So I felt that.
0: You know, and just getting back to the to grief and and also, but writing. I'm wondering if the mechanics of writing, like the actual physical writing process, if that is a is a way of alleviating grief, and and also too, if writing about grief has an impact on alleviating it for you, or if it or if it is retraumatizing when you when you do that.
1: It is body work. I, I had I don't think about it that way, but like when you're writing, there's something f- physical happening. It's partially that's probably part of why I write. I Am mean, I write every day? Most of which is never to see the light of day, but it mm-hmm. is. It's a way of working through feelings. Not just ideas, but like working through emotions, and it is. It's sort of like I also jump on a trampoline, and I think those two actions. There's something that there's a physical part of it that wait,
0: li- you, a literal trampoline?
1: Yeah, I have a little mini trampoline <laughs> okay, in my I room that make I sure jump on. sure it wasn't a
0: metaphor. Just, this is an actual no, no <laughs> trampoline. Okay, I
1: jump on that <laughs> little trampoline, and it it helps my mood, and okay. it helps me feel like I work things out, work things through. So I don't know if I I don't think it is like. Writing isn't healing or something for me, but it is a way of managing emotions and okay. confusion and being overwhelmed. So it doesn't like, I don't get through stuff on the page, but I can live through it with writing.
0: Okay. Okay. I, I, I see that. I, I think I've had a similar experience with writing. Um, yeah. although. Okay, so my mom passed in 2013. It would be nine years uh, this mm. October. and I've had these mechanisms um, of grief where I've I've freed her publicly. I've had you know Facebook statuses, I've written things. There's a whole chapter in my book about her and about her death. And I wrote a thing for Esquire um, in 2020 about about her health and about Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and about I black remember. women and, yes. and, and, and whatever. And after I wrote that piece, I decided that I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm. That I that it wasn't assisting my grieving process anymore, that in fact that writing about my mom and writing about her death was re-traumatizing and and then I asked myself, am I am I trying to monetize this this experience of me re-traumatizing myself? Mm. Um, which I was. Which mm-hmm. I, I definitely mm-hmm. was and mm-hmm. it just got to a point where I was like, yeah, I'm I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And I think I've even, I've maybe overcorrected where, you know, before when an anniversary would pass or or the anniversary of her death would pass, I would acknowledge it, you know, on publicly or whatever. I I don't do that anymore either. And, and I guess this gets, I question I'm, I'm I'm curious about uh, which, which you is like the ritualization of grief and how, much of the ritualization of grief is 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 at least partially connected to how I guess we've been socialized to grief. I'm wondering if you've ever felt that with your grieving process, and also how it connects to your work.
1: Yeah, what I've done is not done the socially acceptable forms of grief, and then felt bad about it. Okay, right. So there, I I decided at a certain point I didn't want to go to funerals. Um, and I didn't go to funerals for several of my aunts who I loved dearly. Mm-hmm. I grieved them. You know, I had my private rituals, which I always, but I'm always engaged in those right um prayer and candles and an altar and all. but I didn't. It was just too much. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I felt badly because you don't like you don't just go to a funeral for yourself, right? You go for other people. you know, and that is a, I, so I think it's a tricky balance. Like sometimes it's like, it's 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 not just like what what people will think, but also what is my responsibility to other people who love the same person I loved, right?
3: Well what
0: what are our, I guess, our responsibilities to living?
1: You know, I mean I come from a large southern family, right? And so there's a sense in which that whole you know, grieving traditions, right? is a moment of love, right? Like where you're together and you are expressing love and you're also expressing all kinds of complicated, painful, mm-hmm. conflicted emotions and people fight. And, but, you know, I think it's like, I have a family where we're close, even if we don't see each other more than a couple days a year. And so that, I think that's part of it. Like those moments then become really important. But I think the thing for kids is really interesting that you raised because, I actually felt kind of bad about... My kids lost so many people who loved them at a young age. I didn't have that happen until adulthood, mm-hmm. right? And so also, like, creating... For me, the most important rituals were conversations with them about the people sharing mm-hmm. the photograph. Like, as opposed to... Because cause funerals and various other kinds of events and a, intense crime. That's a lot for kids to take. Yeah. And in our communities, we have kids up in those places and that, that those events can be traumatizing actually.
0: And my daughter, um, six now, and she is, she is she's starting to ask questions about death. Yeah. That is like a thing that she now recognizes is a, is, is, is a part of life. And she, you know, um, asked, asked me a lot of questions about my mom, um, who she never met and, and my grandparents and, and, and other people and, you know, asked if I will die, if she will die,
1: do you tell her the truth?
0: I do, I do, and I, and, I, and I, I also tell her, you know, not not for a very long time. You don't have to think about that. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about that right now. You know, you're going to live a long life. You're going to have kids, like how we have kids, or if you don't, you're yeah. going to be an adult. You're going to be grown up. You're going to live a long life. But still, you know, I, I did. Uh, I I do have a build about honesty in that in that in that sense because it it gets back to whether or not you feel like your child can handle it because it's not it, it. Honesty is, yeah, of course that, that seems like it's always the right thing to be, but sometimes being honest can be cruel. And I just, you know, I feel like she's at a place now at six where she could, you know, she could take it and she can understand mm-hmm. it. And, you know, it's going to scare her a bit. It has scared her right. a bit, but yeah. I don't think that that's a bad thing right now. Right. As long I don't as it doesn't so overcome her.
1: No, no. I think I think it's actually good. I was asking, because I, cause I w- was honest with my children when they were small, although I was always like, but I'm always going to be around, mm-hmm. like uh, over your shoulder, looking out for you, <laughs> wherever I am on the other side. But my mother wasn't honest with me. My mother, okay. I was like, are you going to die? She was like, nope, never. Can you, will you live for, yes. And that was right for me. And I don't know, yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, because A child, and I think maybe this is the question, knowing your child, someone prone to nightmares, really, like, intense imagination. When she said that, and I knew it wasn't true, but it just made me feel, I was like, okay, cool. It's Sort of Mm -hmm. like the way other children believed in Santa Claus. I didn't. I think kids sort of know Santa Claus isn't real, but it's the, like, willing suspension of disbelief to, like, navigate this world. That's what death was for me as a kid, you know?
0: I, um, oh, wanted to ask about you about about so- south to america and yes i consider grief to be just a like i i don't think that you that you could be a black american and travel in the south without grief being heavy on your mind everywhere that you go i i feel like the 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 the, the american tradition of of grief in terms of performance of public grief leans a lot on like this waspy button-up notion of of not, you know, of not feeling things. And it's funny, it's it, it's not even like a white thing. It's a very waspy white thing because there are pockets of ethnic whiteness that have oh, yeah. their own grieving, you know, Italians, Greeks, you know, Polish, yes. you know, they have their own rituals
1: too. Expressive rituals. Very yeah. expressive rituals. Food yeah. and, and
0: community and and, and all that. And so, you know, I just... I don't know i i I, when i think about my own anxiety about grieving publicly um and how maybe sometimes that might look and how that might feel and my feelings about how that looks and feels I, i know that it's connected to just this indoctrination of well this is how you're supposed to grieve so we were talking about like white people and particularly like this waspy white tradition northeastern tradition to be buttoned up and not allow yourself to to show grief and you know that just comes back to them not allowing themselves to be fully human to experience the the, the full spectrum of humanity like like we like yeah
1: we do. yeah i mean i think it's you know and i i want to be Precise about this because I I think I think you're right to describe it as not fully human. Not that that's a natural thing, but rather that they are often socialized out of the full expression mm-hmm. of emotion um, and of all sorts, and that that is very much tied to the history of of empire and patriarchy and dominating people and the idea the Enlightenment the idea of being rational and dispassionate and all mm-hmm. of those things, and I think it has it has a cost to people who feel confined in that way. And it also of course has a cost to those of us who become, who are blamed for not s- subscribing to yeah. that way of pe- being, right? Like this is the, you know, why are black people so loud question, <laughs> right? Like it's, you know, this sort of, because it's not just, cause it's 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 the wailing and moaning and sadness, but it's also the way we run when we laugh. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that gets treated, it gets policed actually, is treated as a violation of the script. When in fact, the reason that the whole world is so captivated by us is because there is something that is resonating, right? Like there's something resonating deeply. Um, Arna Bantam has this, he tells this story, um, you know, R- Harlem Renaissance writer, he tells the story of when his he gets sent off to boarding school and his father says, you know, don't go up there to a white boarding school. Don't go up there and act colored. And he's basically like, well, the whole world tries to act colored when they get on the dance floor. So, why should I not act colored with my <laughs> colored self? Right. And so, I, but I think it's a really profound moment, right? Because mm-hmm. given how, you know, it's like we have to be very careful not to damn the very things inside us that actually allow other human beings to experience a deeper humanity. Mm-hmm. So, I think we should grieve and shout and, and holler and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah. I'm, um, so I, I feel like there there okay, so there are these like established uh templates mm-hmm. that exist for grieving the loss of a person's life or or even grieving the loss of a romantic relationship. I am grieving loss for friendship. Mm. And Jeez. there aren't hard. as many in fact there there aren't any um like rubrics in place for doing that. Like I I or if they are, I haven't been able to find them um and I, i've I've written about it i'm i wrote a thing about it um and i and it's one of those things where sometimes when i write i i i hope that once i am done writing then the question i had then the, then the, the theory or the you know whatever i had at the beginning um of the writing process i will have found an answer to it because the writing sometimes helps me think and helps me just streamline my thoughts, but it didn't happen this time too. I'm I'm just as lost. (laughs) Um and it's something that, you know, I I guess have you had experience with that, with um grieving the loss of a of a friendship.
1: Absolutely. And those have been some of the hardest for more often than not, those have been harder than the ends of romantic relationships. For me also part of the ending of romantic relationships Either we actually, either we're so pissed at each other that you don't feel, so, or we're still friends. And so we don't, you actually haven't lost the person. Like you, you know, you, there's the pain of the transformation of the relationship, but you're still friends. You're still, and so you, you don't, you haven't lost that person. But when the loss of a friendship, especially when you love that person, but you definitely don't want to be friends again, is so hard when you're like, I can't be friends with that person. Or that person is like, I can't be friends with you. <laughs> Which I've been in both situations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even even romantic relationship, I think there is also you know uh, relationships. These most of our romantic relationships here exist at least under the veneer of monogamy. Um, right. So you could end a relationship because you just want to be single, and you or you want to be with somebody else, right? Whereas a friendship, you can have as many friends as you want yeah so you know, obviously, different friendships are going to hold different spaces and different points of your life. but there's no re you could have a thousand. I mean, you're not going to have a thousand friends, but you could theoretically have a thousand friends. and so so when a friendship ends, so when friendship ends like that, it's like, oh no, this is about you <laughs> or this is about your relationship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's really insightful. That's true, and also I don't know if you experienced, but there's also the awkwardness of that with friend groups because
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know when friendships break up, and then there's a whole ecosystem around most of your friendships, and then mm-hmm. that becomes complicated. And there are people sometimes people it's also sometimes it's like a divorce, like you wind up being one partner gets you, one friend gets you, and then yeah. the other yeah. gets the other part. Like it's and that can be funky and hard. Yeah,
0: i haven't i haven't had that experience uh yet um in terms of having like the separate to friends um custody like have like a custody, Custod- agreement, custody battle. Like, you right? know or you get them on the weekends right. i mean you get monique on the weekends and now I'll, I'll get her you know i'll get her in the summer um and we can hang out but uh it is something that is taking a bit more out of me than than I anticipated um it would and it's um yeah it's been two years and it's still it's still very, very, very fresh.
1: One of the things I tell people with divorce, because I experienced divorce, is that if you go through divorce and you decide you're not going to be angry, then it is much more painful because you just have to deal with the loss. But I think it then actually, so I, I think there's something about what the loss of friendship that tends not, sometimes you fall out with people because they did you dirty, but sometimes it's, you know, and I, I do think there's something about what it means to let go of someone. Even if you don't think that they're like you, you—it's not—they're not a bad person. You're not enraged, and so I—I mm-hmm. I sort of had—I feel like I had that experience. Although my ex-husband and I are still friends, but to sort of be honest about, no, this person is great, but it's hard.
0: Do you have you ever found yourself like desensitized to to subsequent griefs?
1: Oh, I wish <laughs> okay. I don't. I mean, I I, I just. And I say, I wish, because I do think, you know, one of the things that I am learning as I, as I get older is that a lot of what it means to have a good life is figuring out how to make do Mm -hmm. and making do, you know, we sort of, our culture kind of looks down on making do as a disposition because everything's supposed to be healed and everything is supposed to be aspirational and you're supposed to get everything right. You're supposed to try to make, get happy and i i think that that is not really what life is like <laughs> and there's a lot of and that if you can make do where you're like okay i'm going to hold on this this and this is fucked up but this is good and i'm going to hold on i feel like that's a big part of learning how to live well and so i when i say i wish i i really can fall apart with new <laughs> new griefs and have a you know and feel sort of emotionally not in control in a way that I feel like I, it takes me a while to get myself together, and I and to be completely honest, you know, as a black adult in this society, you, we have to make do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: i mean, it's just a lot of grief, and it's grieving people, it's grieving, you know, the worlds we are it's grieving communities. It's, it's so and so we have to have a way of like okay, holding on. Right, Mm -hmm. day by day. You're going to fall apart, but you also have to understand, you know, as my grandmother used to say, you weren't born to live on flower beds of ease. I
0: I think I eventually realized that what made me feel so awkward and so unsatisfied about the Esquire essay is that I was performing grief. Right? Like, I mean, of course I miss my mom, and, and of course it hurts that she's not here. And of course, the substandard medical care that so many black women receive is evergreen. But as I told Imani, I was just re-traumatizing myself with the memory of grief. And for what? The prestige of being featured in Esquire? I mean, that felt good, sure. But it wasn't worth it. So the, the main image for the Esquire essay is a picture of my mom from the 70s and, and between her Titanic Afro and her oversized Barrymore collar, she looked like a black exploitation hero. Like she could have been out there solving crimes and smacking jive turkeys with Pam Greer. It's not just my favorite picture of her. It might be my single favorite picture. And in April of this year, after years of deliberating and also combing the earth in Western Pennsylvania to find the right artist, I got a rendering of this picture tattooed on my right forearm. It's basically an entire sleeve, and the work took six painstaking hours to complete. Did it hurt? (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) It's still sore a month later. But this is how I want to remember her. Vibrant. Black beautiful. So this time, the pain was worth it. Stuck with Damon Young is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Damon Young. Ruben Davis is our executive producer. Our producers are Ashley Belez, Morgan Moody, Carlton Gillespie, Priscilla Alabi, Stephen Hoffman, and Corinne Gilliard. Mixing and sound design by Jesse Nas, Charlotte Landis, and Veronica Simonetti. Theme music and score by Open Mike Eagle. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Tanya Sominator, Sarah Geismer, and Katie Long. From Gimlet, our executive producers are Rosie Guerin, Crystal Hall Stressler, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polgre. And also, special thanks to co author Riley, whose reading you heard in this episode is adapted from her New York Times bestseller, This Here Flesh.